I'm Reed Smith. Gene Herman. I'm Asher Maxwell. I'm Ryan Estrin. And you're listening to 440 Views from the Hill. Discussing the filibuster, but before we begin, we'll ask another um, political question. Uh, today's question is: What do we think is the most likely 2024 matchup? Not the one that we think is most desirable. It's not the candidates necessarily that we support, but which ones we think are the most likely? Um, I'll go first. I think the matchup will be Kamala Harris and Donald Trump. I think it will be uh, Joseph Biden and Donald Trump. I think it will be Pete Buttigieg and Donald Trump. I think it will be Pete and Donald Trump. So today we'll be discussing um, whether or not the filibuster should be abolished, which is something the Democrats are considering right now. The filibuster is a rule in the Senate that essentially allows any member of the Senate to delay passage of a bill indefinitely um, by just speaking on the Senate floor. The way that that is ended is by invoking what is known as cloture, which ends debate and allows them to move on to passage of a bill. But that requires 60 votes. So... That can be a little bit complicated, but essentially it means that in order to pass a bill in the United States Senate, you have to have 60 votes as a poor, as opposed to 51, which would be a simple majority. Okay, so now we will um, state our positions. I am in favor of abolishing the filibuster and returning it to a simple majority for passing legislation in the Senate. I'm not only in favor of abolishing the filibuster, but abolishing the Senate. Okay, so I am in favor of definitely keeping the Senate and... Um, reforming the filibuster so that uh, it would require a vote to end debate. It would require a vote of, it doesn't matter the amount of senators, but the amount, the number of senators need to hold a majority of the U.S. population. So each senator is essentially assigned half of their state's population. And if the total population is a majority of the U.S. population, then that is enough to end debate. Uh, I'm in favor of the filibuster. I can go ahead and um, kick off the discussion. So I think the most convincing or persuasive argument that I've heard for why we should abolish the filibuster is comes from the perspective of the need to preserve the credibility and legitimacy of our democracy. Um, the issue with the filibuster is that it really incentivizes gridlock over um, effective governance. So when you require 60 percent of the Senate to be on board with a bill in order for it to pass, as well as requiring the House of Representatives, the President, and the Supreme Court, you make it functionally impossible for one party to create a ruling majority in the in the United States, which means that at no point can one party ever pass their agenda. And there's a couple reasons why that's bad. First of all is that parties campaign as um, kind of one unit advocating one policy agenda. And so when they are elected into when voters elect them into office, they expect to see results from that election and from their voting. And when they spend, when they when they go out and they vote for the party, and then the party gets into office, they can't get any of their promises done. That looks really bad for democracy. It makes voters less engaged. It makes them think that all politicians do is sit around and twiddle their thumbs instead of solving problems, which is you know part of the problem that we're running into all these problems with the. Um, 
credibility and legitimacy of our democracy and the ability to preserve uh, the democracy, you know, things like January 6th, things like disillusion with the government and spread of conspiracy theories really, I think, result from the fact that our government can't get anything done. Uh, it's actually interesting because the political scientists did the study and they basically counted a number of different bodies or institutions that could check the or could have veto any legislation. And for most countries, most developed Western democracies, it's one because they're in the parliamentary systems. For others, it's two. Uh, I think Switzerland is an example of that. And for just a handful of ones, it's three. But the United States is the only Western democracy that has four different institutions that can veto legislation, which means we are already inclined to um, the status quo and make it hard to pass legislation. Um, but the filibuster just makes that functionally impossible, which is really bad for democracy. Yeah, so uh, I kind of agree with Asher. I think the filibuster as it stands right now hinders on our ability to create legislation. And that's not what um, its original intentions were. I think the founders saw it as a deliberative process that's used for compromise and a way to get both sides to agree, which should represent what the people want. But that's not what it is right now. It's being used as a political tool, which is not how it was intended to be used. And that's why I think we need to reform it. I mean, I think Reed is wrong and right. He's right in that we need to change it. But he's wrong in that the founders ever had any idea about making it some kind of, like, deliberative body. The point of it is to slow things down. It is to be an elitist institution. There's the For hundreds of years, the Senate was unelected. It took until 1913 to make it directly elected by the 17th Amendment. And at that time, whether it be early, more radical members of the Populist Party, some of the Greenbacks, or later on, Eugene Debs in 1917, and also, uh, you know, the several times he runs for president, uh, all push for some of these, like, Senate abolition because it is a fundamentally undemocratic institution. If you look at it, it's something designed to slow down the legislative process. It was called like the cooling plate of democracy. It's something that's meant to prevent actually important major changes from being passed and using elite control in order to uh, facilitate that. The ch- changes that need to be occurred don't just happen with like the issues of the filibuster. The Senate is still massively unproportional. Millions more are represented by some senators and others. Somebody from Wyoming has 70 times the vote as somebody from uh, California because of the way that it's disproportionate. And that's something that needs to fundamentally be changed. So do you disagree that the founders in- intended it to be a tool to create compromise? Well, yeah, it was a tool to create compromise, but your point was like, yeah, it's a tool to be deliberative, but now it's being used as like a political tool. The point is to be a political tool. The reason to force compromise for the founders were they were like, they represented a group of landed gentry, universally. Half of the groups were uh, this like Jeffersonian, like planter (coughs) elite, and the other half were like a financial capital elite. They had internal conflicts, but they both agreed that they need to fundamentally not let any other kind of challenge face them, which is what the Senate allowed for by having these massive kinds of votes, which it exists through today and how, you know, politics operate. And that's something that needs to be changed. And just getting rid of the filibuster can't resolve that issue. Well, I, I want to clarify. I don't think it's being used now. When I say it's being used as a political tool, I don't think it's I, – I, what I mean is that it's being used to – simply like cancel legislation rather than try to talk about it and present a better piece of legislation. Yeah, but the Senate would never – there's no world where the Senate isn't being used in a way to just like try and hinder important legislation It because it's just a fundamentally unrepresentative body where the Republicans are representing 
like 40 million less people but hold the same number of seats, that's not a representative body. That is a body designed to slow down things and to be used in a way that people can assert control and prevent important changes from being so I will make the case for why we should preserve this in it. And obviously I'm in favor of abolishing the filibuster, but I think <clears throat> what Ryan's ignores is that there is actually some risk to having too much change too quickly. And with a country that is as geographically uh, and demographically diverse as the United States, it's very important that, um, well, for one, we have kind of a federal system where power is devolved to different regions, but also that the federal government doesn't move too quickly with change and that we ensure that there is broad agreement or at least sufficient agreement on policies before they are adopted, which is why I think it's important to have two legislative bodies, a president and a Supreme Court, all as different checks to assure that you know there's not uh, tyranny of the majority. Ryan uh, mentions a couple things. He says, like, I think it was the cooling. He referenced the cooling saucer of the Senate. Well, for one, you know, that's actually misattributed. There's no nobody actually thinks that the founders ever used that phrase to describe the Senate. But what they did believe the Senate was was the real phrases were way more disturbing. And the Asher's use here of tyranny of the majority. I mean, come on. Like, you're just openly saying that, uh, like, Ryan, the vast me, majority me, of the population shouldn't be represented because they might make decisions that are tyrannous. But it's popular will. Let me give you an example of tyranny, tyranny of the majority. You're about to say Ryan. something about civil rights. I know. Segregation. It. Yes. Segregation yeah, I'm aware of what of you were about majority. to say with tyranny of the majority. Yeah, you're right. This things like segregation exist and develop out of this. Ultimately, this is a difference of how politics develop and different root cause factors that we can debate. Fundamentally, though, the Senate was what was used to hold up segregation. The Senate, yes. the Southern senators worked in coalition with a bunch of other kinds of people to hold up any kind of actual civil rights legislation. The House was for it, but they were holding up. The filibuster was used to do this. But beyond that, the fact that senator, Southern senators could work together to hold up any piece of thing was done to protect and expand segregation and also slavery before segregation. Right, because, the, because the filibuster is a tool to preserve the tyranny of the minority. You, basically, essentially what the, the Senate and our system of checks and balances does is ensures that there are um, there are checks from one group winning an election and then immediately kind of forcing down the throats of the rest of the country something that is not wanted. I agree with Ryan that, uh, you know, a majority should govern this country and that when a, when a party wins control of the House, the Senate and the presidency, they should be able to make decisions. Well, Asher, I got to say two things here. One, you're saying that, like, we can't just let an elected party impose their will on another group. But that's what an election is. It's a determinant of the popular will. It's not imposing it upon something that's, like, unpopular. You're pretending like they're being elected from the minority. That's, in theory, at least not what's going to happen. I mean, sure, the Electoral College is an issue. Two, I don't understand what your bright line is for the difference between tyranny the minority and tyranny the majority. If, if the Senate preserves... Uh, tyranny against or against the tyranny majority, but the filibuster preserves is, is a expression of tyranny minority. What is the balance here? So the issue that arises when you let fifty one percent of the country uh, dictate the policy for one hundred percent of the country in a country like the United States. So maybe it makes sense in individual states to have complete rule by a simple majority, or even countries like homogenous countries like Britain. Where it's parliamentary Britain system. Britain is far from homogenous. Hold on, hold on, Ryan. Relatively, we're talking about relative terms. The U.S. is much more diverse than the, sure. than Britain. So, and I'm not just talking about like racial diversity, but I'm talking about much more like fundamental cultural diversity between uh, Britain and the United States. So my point is that in a country like the United States, the only way to preserve democracy is to make sure that at the federal level, it is not too easy to dictate to the rest of the country what policies should be. Um, 
so you know, I guess what the the issue at hand is that you know we should preserve checks and balances to ensure that there is at least some kind of the policies must at least have some sort of uh, consistent consensus. And what I mean by that is like over time, the consensus remains for and in favor of a policy in order to ensure that uh, we don't aren't are governed by um, tyranny of the majority. Now, I know Ryan, you know, doesn't like that phrase because he thinks it's like anti-democratic and against the popular will. Which makes sense at a theoretical level and makes sense at a localized level. But when you're talking about some, a place like the United States where we have to make policy for Wyoming and California and Massachusetts and Tennessee, it, it makes way less sense to let one party, one pol- one a simple majority dictate policy for the rest. So that's why I think the Senate is valuable. But again, I think in the United States that has currently gone too far, which is why we should abolish the filibuster. I mean, I think you're still just like, at the end of the day, advocating for like ages keep dissent against the popular will and finding ways to use politics to oppress that. Like, sure, you might be right that at times policy would be unpopular, but it, that could be rolled back for one. And two, I think the kinds of countries that have systems that have far fewer checks and balances that are like more traditional parliamentarian systems like Britain ultimately put them in a better position because they can actually develop a socio-democratic state yes. that's actually valuable. Yes. I, I agree with that, Ryan. That Like, for Britain, the parliamentary system makes sense. And just to be clear, 100% clear, I'm in favor that the current system has too many checks and balances, that it needs to be easier to govern this country. But, Ryan, you're ignoring the fact that the United States is a really... it's It, it is a melting pot of, of different cultures, and each of those cultures have different values, they have different traditions, they have different expectations of the government. And so when you let one country... one, one a simple majority kind of overrule the rest of the country and lower the bar for what is necessary to achieve political change in the country, you risk instability and mistrust of the government. Um, because there's no mistrust of the government now. No, Famously, people is, are very is, happy Ryan, with it. You're, you're ignoring the you're not ignoring the fact that I'm not defending the status quo. I think the but, filibuster is bad. But I, then I you're like, before. but then people will be mistrustful under a world where like we're more yes, democratic. Because, because there are there are such things as extremes. And one extreme is something like a dictatorship, and another extreme is something like, you know, nothing ever gets done. And I think we got to find the happy medium, and I just don't think that abolishing the Senate gets us there. So, so abolishing the Senate is like, I don't understand what your issue with, with it is. You're just saying that, like, we need to preserve some vague idea of balance. Like, what yes. is the Senate doing that's balancing it, is my question. I guess you're going to... Okay, gonna I can get into the, de- I can get yeah. into the nitty-gritty if you want me to. Um, so the, when you have two bodies of, of legislature... Uh, it requires a single party or, I guess, a single policy to win support of both chambers. Now, the reason that that is actually requires, I guess, more deliberation and more kind of consistent consensus is the way the Senate is structured, right? So only two-thirds of the Senate is elected or one-third of the Senate is elected every two years and the House is elected every two years. What that means is that you really kind of have to build a consensus that can last through multiple elections in order to ensure its passage. Which means that it, it provides time for deliberation, and the risk that that guards against is that we move too quickly with policy, which could disrupt the, the country. And you know, I think there's a reason the United States is by far the most long-lasting um, democracy, and that you know we're relatively stable compared to um, other democracies that have collapsed. And I think the reason for that is that we guard against quick change. We guard okay, against. Where has quick change caused the collapse of democracy? Um, Russia. When. 
the the revolution, the Russian Revolution. Okay, Asher, you're trying to talk about Russia. Like, let's talk about Russia then in 1917. So the Tsar is overthrown in night in February, right? When our time March, uh, the provisional government's established. There's a, du- a dual pr- systems of power. The Soviets exist, most notably the Petrograd Soviet, and then the provisional government based out of the Winter Palace. The no Tsar comes in. Kerensky's leading the government. He puts all his faith into doing a second offensive, which is massively unpopular. This leaves a major room for first the June uprising because he's trying this to send Ryan. the Bolshevik division. Ryan, we're all very impressed with your knowledge of Russian history, but I have no idea why this is relevant. Because your point is that somehow what action happens, the answer is Kerensky didn't change anything, and that's what caused Lenin to rise up. Your idea that things change too fast and that's what destroyed democracy doesn't account for what actually happened in Russia in 1917. Okay, okay. I, I actually now understand what you're saying and maybe you know my point was a little flawed but um it is true and it is definitely well documented that when countries implement massive changes quickly um other parts of the country can become disaffected quickly and that that can lead to all sorts of civil conflicts i mean to some extent that's true i think like like Okay, sure. There's times in which changes do cause maybe some social strife. I think a lot of those you can see in like maybe the neoliberalization of the like world. Like Northern England's a good example of this, where Margaret Thatcher really focuses on the South. But at the end of the day, I think like one, I think in the modern like neoliberal era where people are just so massively dissatisfied with the status quo, I think the alternative systems that could be pushed through with actually democratic systems of power. And governments would be effective and useful in this alternative, like, no Senate world. So, I have a question for Ryan. Okay. Do you not think that um, there's a danger for rash and sometimes just policies that are, like, overreactions or that are just bad ideas to be passed with a simple majority? I mean, I think that's always a risk. There's a few things. One, I think that just, like, democracy is better. Like, at the end of the day, I think I value democracy over the risk of... Well, we're not talking about getting rid of democracy. Well, I think it's... Okay. I'm coming from a standpoint, which you're ignoring, I guess, or you don't understand. The Senate's fundamentally undemocratic. It's not representing people in a fair, democratic manner. Well, I, no matter how it is. I understand that. Right? I understand that. Even if policy not, no, passes I agree. too quickly... I right. Because the way, the, the way it's not proportional. Even if policy passes too quickly, I think that that's good because... That's ultimately a better expression of popular will. Well, so I think you're making two points there that are different. I think that the Senate is disproportional and that we should make efforts to change that. So there's way we there's ways we could reallocate senders or we could really reconfigure the structure of the Senate to ensure that it is representative of states of, or more representative or sorry, is proportionally representative of where. Um, people are in the country. So yeah. California and Wyoming <clears throat> and don't have the same number of senators. That exists. It's called the House of Representatives. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, <laughs> I guess I, I think that, you know, what, one advantage or one value the Senate can provide is basically being a um, House of Representatives 2.0, uh, but offering the kind of delayed election cycles that kind of can ensure. So you're arguing for the filibuster? No. I'm confused. How How is this Senate, House of Representatives... 2.0 going to differ from the original House of Representatives? Uh, um, a smaller number of members and the late election cycles. Every two years, um, one-third of the Senate is elected. So 
so what changes are you are you are you arguing that changes should be made? Well, I don't actually think it's that should be reformed. In, you know, in reality, like the Senate's not going to be abolished, and the neither uh, is Senate, the, the Senate is not going to be changed because it's way harder to make constitutional reforms than it is to abolish the filibuster. So I'm not really interested in these super hypothetical scenarios because they're not. No, possible. what are you arguing? I'm confused. Well, I'm arguing for the abolition of the filibuster and the preservation of the Senate. But are you arguing? Are you arguing for reform of the Senate? Yeah, I think reform is valuable. He just thinks it's not feasible. Like he thinks my issue is I'm not being pragmatic and uh, pragmatic enough, and I think he's being too concessionary. Like at the end of the day, that's the main difference that we're having. Mm-hmm. But what reforms are you proposing? A proportional Senate. It's the House of Representatives. I mean, yeah. But he thinks that the delayed election cycle provides a unique value. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm not buying that. I mean, you're, I mean, you're you, favor, explain. Explain you're in favor of the abolition of the Senate too. No, no, I'm not buying that. Uh, making it proportional would change anything. I think with regards. Oh, oh, oh. so you you want me to defend the fact of the part that makes it proportional? Yes. Okay. Well, that's very simple. I don't think California and Wyoming should have the same number of senators. Right, but what, that's what distinguishes the Senate. Is that yeah? Well, that's there, what makes it undemocratic. It's supposed to provide somewhat of a voice for the minority. There are other things. Oh, oh, are you in favor of that? What? Rep- uh, non non proportional I mean, to an extent. I, I don't think. I mean, not not with regards to the filibuster. But you still think it's fine that Wyoming has this? That a person in Wyoming's voting power is seventy times that of Californian well, because of population. I mean, and the way two senators. Again, it's, a, it's all. It's all relative. I mean, to what? With respect, with respect to the filibuster. It's fil- all relative. With, to what? <laughs> with respect to the filibuster. You fil- have to relate it to something, Reed. <laughs> Let me clarify my idea of reform for the filibuster. So I think what should happen is each senator should be allotted ha- a number, and that number is half the population of their state. So two senators per state each um, allotted the number of half the population of that state. And then when um, a vote of cloture comes, uh, however many f- uh, votes in favor of ending debate, however many votes there are, tally up those numbers of the population with um, their respective state. And if that number is a majority of the U.S. population, then debate is ended and um it moves to a vote. So I think what Reed is saying, it, it's a definitely interesting perspective and has some value, but I think there's two main issues with it. One, it continues to preserve the disproportionate and undemocratic nature of the Senate by like still maintaining that two, two seats per state thing, while also making all the arguments about how the Senate is used to like maintain, to make sure there's like geographic diversity and geographic representation, like and getting rid of the Senate would affect that actually a true argument because states like Wyoming would never be able to have any effect in like one of those cloister votes. But at the same time, like the Senate is still fundamentally disproportionate and states like Wyoming would still have two Senate votes to do like what they pleased with outside of those cloister votes. And that would ultimately not like represent the people. So I think an an actual argument against changing the Senate is that, uh, What's best for California obviously isn't best for other states. There's geographic differences, uh, a lot of geographic differences. I also think like the filibuster, uh, a lot of Asher's point is about polarization and how we need to send a message to like the world and America broadly. But I think that abolishing the filibuster, that would hurt like 50% of the population already doesn't 
uh, agree with the other 50% and abolishing the filibuster would not lend itself well to that. And it would actually hurt the ability to uh, get the agenda passed, but also it would hurt Democrats in the future when uh, Republicans win the next midterm and uh, try to pass their agenda. And there's no filibuster to stop them from doing that. Yeah, I think that's fine. Like, I agree. You, you're come, you come from this perspective that, like, all that I'm going to, like, say, like, oh, Republicans shouldn't be able to pass their agenda. I've said this earlier. I think that the value of, like, better democracy, better democratic representation is in actually getting stuff done is outweighed by any policies that I don't like getting passed. Well, and in a, a world where those policies become unpopular because they actually get passed, which I think would inevitably happen, it could turn back and those would be. Well, I, I think that those policies changing every two or every four years is uh, is much more uh, like hurtful to the like democracy of America than those policies not happen. Well, let's look at a country where I don't know policy does can change on a on a whim. I think you see like a country where parliamentarian systems exist, and sure, their elections might happen slightly differently. Um, you don't even when things change, you don't see this like uh, everything gets destroyed. Sure, there's a different administration coming in, and those different governments hold, push for different kinds of legislation. But in the end of the day, they still remain stable, and different kinds of policies are implemented. The other thing you're yeah. ignoring is that huge portions of the American public like poll very highly on major issues, gun control, which uh, I know Gene and I might sort of agree on in a weird way. Um, Medicare for all uh, polls surprisingly high, even among Republicans. Um, green policy, a bunch of other, you know, unique things that people generally want. Like people are okay with generally corporate taxes as well. There's a bunch of things that are held up because lobbying groups know that they can lobby to stop um important legislation for me passed. So whether you think that we need to do massive gun control, which polls very highly, or whether you think we need Medicare for all, which polls very highly, or whether you think we need to cut taxes, which sometimes polls highly, all of these things could be happened, it could occur and happen under a let no filibuster system. Well, I I mean, I disagree with you on that. I think that the way that people are elected change, like, just because it, there's popular support for it doesn't mean that that would pass even without the filibuster. So I don't think that that would affect that. But I, I think if you, if you want to explain that a little bit more, maybe I can. Well, I think I can explain it. So the reason that um, policy that there is not actually as much policy whiplash is, I think, a good way to describe what you're worried about in a um, system where we have more democracy is that the popular policies stay in place. So I'll give you a good example. The Republicans tried to repeal the ACA. But in part because of its, va- its overwhelming popularity with the populace, it, they weren't able to do it. And I think that's a good example of, you know, in a world where the filibuster is abolished, how popular policies stay in place because it is because it is difficult for the um, the uh, the party that in power to repeal the popular bills of the party out of power, just fundamentally. And if they do, then they're going to be punished in the next election. And the next party will get to re-implement their really, plan. I think the, really quickly, the ACA just, is a little bit different. Really just quickly, because, just a clarification for everybody who remembers, ACA is Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Gene, you can go. Well, I think the difference with the ACA is the reason that it didn't get repealed is because they couldn't pass anything to replace it. So, like, abolishing the filibuster would change that because they would be able to pass what they wanted to do. The reason it wasn't repealed is because it was just, just universally a popular piece of legislation, and Republicans knew they'd take yes. a hit for getting it. But the Republicans who controlled the Republicans Repealing who controlled the Senate wanted to repeal and replace it, and yeah, they no. weren't able to because of cloture. No, 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 that's not true because they were repealing it. They were repealing it under reconciliation, which means they didn't need a filibuster vote. Actually, it would have failed in a simple majority because people like John McCain and Susan Collins supported it or opposed it, which means it wouldn't have gotten the fifty votes anyway. 
I think that one example still doesn't disprove the way that that, that abolishing the filibuster would cause polarization, because even if policies poll uh, popularly, broadly, that doesn't mean that them being passed without the filibuster would uh, cause, like, general consensus. I also think, like, I don't know what Gene is trying to say, but I think that when you, it, it doesn't seem immediately logical, but when you abolish the filibuster, I think that helps address concerns with polarization. Because fundamentally, I think the reason that we move to extremes in this country, the reason that, you know, you've got the Bernie Sanders left. Well, I and, think. Hold on. Hold okay, on. Well, you're and, directly and, invoking me, And so. the Donald Trump right, uh, which are, you know, probably two actually milder extremes of the United States political system. The reason we have this is because everyone is so disaffected with how the government currently works. And if we can make the government more effective, that will actually naturally lead to maybe more moderation. And maybe that moderation is in one direction or another. So maybe people kind of converge around a consensus that's more left than it is now, or more right than it is now. But fundamentally, I think that is good for democracy when there's more moderation and less you know, polarization along the extremes. See, that's the thing. I just disagree with you. I don't think that the Democrats abolishing the filibuster would cause consensus from the right. It's not, I, you're, you're, it's not consensus from the right. Well, let me make it a little bit more clear. When I, I think that when people see the government actually working, the government actually addressing problems like drug prices, climate change, economic, um, economic issues, and um, all sorts of other uh, crises, when, the gov- when people actually see the government addressing problems, they will feel that radical politics is less necessary, and thus they'll become less polarized. I think... In a weird way, I agree with Asher, but then I completely agree, disagree with him when he starts talking about how it dis- destroys the Bernie Sanders left or something. Uh, I think to the extent that I agree with him is that, like, yeah, he's right that government ineffectiveness does create in a lot of ways polarization. And I think a lot of these grounds are reified and d- developed around cultural issues, which come out of a failing for either party to actually have address like any form of addressment or addressing uh, to the economic ailments of the nation. As the United States deindustrialized, there had to be a shift away from actual fiscal and monetary policy, things that actually mattered to like the average voter and an average member of like the you know just the American populace, and had to focus instead on the minute differences between the parties, which at the end of the day became cultural issues. And as the United States has become e- economically worse and more unequal, those cultural issues have become more, greater and greater. And what you saw was like Bernie Sanders was a refutation of like cultural politics in a lot of ways. He wasn't like running as like the super woke liberal like a lot of the other like so-called progressives were. And in the same sense, even though Trump did a lot of culture, his 2016 campaign was actually relatively not cultural and focused a lot on things like um, uh, bringing manufacturing back. But then when, uh, you know, Trump wins, he hevers, he doubles down on a lot of this cultural war stuff, culture war stuff. And that accelerates and makes things generally like worse and things like Russiagate I think were partly responsible for this but at the end of the day I think that actually allowing for popular policy to go through and something that could be addressed actually like depoliticizes in the sense that people aren't so focused on like culture war well I, I just disagree with that like I think the culture war right now is between different parties and different like ideas of what government should be and I think like that is causing more. I mean, I don't think like canceling Dr. Seuss or saying that like they're teaching CRT in school is anything that actually has to do with like actual politics. It's just like something to distract people on and make it seem like there's a greater difference in like the policies that a lot of these people are going to. Well, sure, I agree with that. But I think that if the left passes their agenda, I don't think that the right just moves away from doing that. I think they. Oh, I don't think they do either. I think it makes it worse. 
is I what mean, I'm saying. Because I think that they have to deflect at that point because their policies aren't being implemented. I mean, I think to the extent their policies are being. I think the difference of what could happen in a post filibuster world is that if like policies that are popular across both sides are being implemented, it can shift the balance to like what the parties look like. Like if there's policies that are like generally like pro working class or whatever, like the kind of Trump base that that develops like very devoutly to him can kind of shift and change, and that would change the ground for both parties. I, I think you're you're thinking much more long term in the context of like multiple election cycles, but I think that in the status quo that would make much like I think it would make the culture war a lot worse. I mean, I don't know how. Much I think it would make the culture war worse for like a handful of elect uh, a handful of news cycles. Like I think Fox News would probably have a fit, and maybe that would worsen the culture war. But in the long term, it would address the structural issues that are causing polarization in the United States. I think it depends on how you define the long term, because I don't think that if the right or if the left becomes super focused on that culture culture war, I don't think they just stop at a certain point. Like, you think they just don't stop the culture war? Like, you think it's just, like, locked in? Yes. Like, I think that's a certain, like, way of politics that wouldn't go away. I mean, I think this comes from a fundamental disagreement that I think the culture war develops out of, like, a need to pull politics away from economic and, like, material interest. Uh, and I think that, re- like, abolishing the filibuster and abolishing the Senate allows for material interest to be reintroduced to politics. And for me, that's in the form of social democracy on this, like, you know, the Bernie Sanders left. Uh, but for and I see a lot of times liberals like Asher or conservatives are more likely to criticize this but um, I think uh, at the end of the day it makes a difference between you know how people will actually focus on politics it's a time where like these issues weren't the dominant issues and those times there's a direct correlation of when culture war starts becoming the like dominant thing in politics and when economic when like the neoliberal consensus forms So that kind of wraps up our filibuster discussion. Uh, I think I want to move it over uh, to discussing another issue about sort of democracy and what how people should be represented, and that's the Supreme Court. So currently, the Supreme Court has judicial review, which gives them the ultimate right to determine what's constitutional and what's not. Uh, while it's generally, I think there's a lot of debate that's come up around how the court should operate with the massive conservative majority that's been developed. And I'm going to throw out the idea that we should just uh, abolish judicial review. Like, there shouldn't be what I view as judicial supremacy over, like, the Constitution. I think it's fundamentally bad. And I just kind of, like, let's feel out what other people think and uh, have a little bit of a debate about this. Well, so I just think that abolishing judicial review would be disastrous because I just think that a lot of people uh, don't follow the Constitution and the laws that they make, and it causes bad laws that the Supreme Court has to strike down or else uh, they go into place. Uh, I think there's a lot example of examples in American history of when the Supreme Court has been a deciding factor in whether a law has been upheld, and it's very important uh, to have judicial review. Um, so I think Gene has some points here, and the times he's got, pretty much any time he's going to point to it doing something good is going to be a period of the court under Warren, so the Warren court, which is where, like, Brown v. Ford happens. And I think, well, obviously, like, that's good. I think what you need to see and contextualize this, too, is a few things. One, for almost every bad decision of the Supreme Court, 
or, the, or every good decision, there's a bad decision that backs that up and is basically being overturned. So, like, a very good example of this for discussing Bradley Ford uh, would be, like, Dred Scott, uh, which is a major case that ultimately allows, like, slavery to be effectively, in a lot of ways, expanded to most of the United States. And when this happens, like... And it used different times in American history where people do oppose a lot of the court's pools. So, like, the Republicans, which is a movement that develops as a party to oppose slavery, are very – like, the court is being bad. And Abraham Lincoln, even, one of the most respected presidents, is can basically condemn the court as being reactionary and engaging in a pro-slavery conspiracy and is an authority that we need to reject and overturn. And there's a lot of times where I think bad, good things were stopped by the court. So things like Truman, when he um, was attempting to potentially nationalize steel over um, – and some over some like union disputes as few and Teddy Roosevelt also threatened to do something similar or the New Deal period where there's legislation that's just overturned uh, by uh, the you know things like the AAA or the NRA which were objectively good and helped many millions of people gain wealth at a time that American economy is doing terrible um, and what happens when you do this is that the court it basically serves to reinforce reactionary points of view and to protect certain interests that it has historically represented. Well, I'm a little bit confused because you just said that there were a few cases where the court was like important. So, yeah, no, how do you think? How do you think a world without judicial review operates? I mean, I think it oper- operates on like legislative supremacy, which is what you see in a lot of countries like the United Kingdom, where they do have some levels of judicial review. But at the end of the day, most of them are not as asserting large levels of judicial review, and they fundamentally have functional like systems. So, like the other thing that's worth noting about Brown v. Board is like it's obviously a foundational and very important case that does lots of good things, but it actually didn't change much if you look at the data. It really takes until like the Civil Rights Act to actually start instituting actual like integration. Well, if you look at the data, it's until the court decides to start enforcing those measures that it actually happens. Well, yeah, but it still requires basically legislation of initiative. Well, sure, but the court decides, court guides that legislative initiative. Do you, do you like disagree with the constitution? Yes. Do you think like it should not exist? I mean, I think there's value in constitutions. I just think the American constitution has a lot of flaws and the idea that we need to have a body that sole body is to basically take their own opinion. So Amy Coney Barrett's a really good example of this. And Republicans will also have another really good example of this, in my opinion, which is whether it be Amy Coney Barrett's book where she talks about how you should use the Bible in in, uh, conjunction with the Constitution, or conservatives bringing up abortion, which I think they have a pretty strong point that it might not be in the Constitution at all. Uh, And and they'll tell this about, like, judicious legislation, judicial rulemaking, these things that are, like, not what the Constitution actually is. Well, my issue is that I think all of these interpretations are not actually the Constitution. They're just what nine or old or yeah old people think, and that's not a fundamentally good way to have a. The Constitution was written hundreds of years ago, so the purpose is to interpret. I mean, how yeah. it fits into today's. But society. I think the idea that we should let just like nine people who are un- who basically have no checks or balances, no oversight. Uh, just like come up with their own doctrines and then apply those to the to a document as they see fit that does not that in my opinion is just like majorly outdated. I mean, you time. can say they're unchecked, but we haven't don't have any reason to believe that they need to be checked because they enforce. I mean, it, when you look at, I mean, um, okay, so let's it, talk it, about these, are, these yeah. are just like political. Yeah, you do. Why, why do you think they shouldn't be checked? They, I mean, they, they're they're checked to some extent. They're, they're, that's why. They're okay, so let's justices. look at some cases. Like, would you think like? So Dred Scott, like that, I mean, it's opposed, and ultimately that helps the Republicans come around and win an election, and Abraham Lincoln win. But, like, how is that a good example of when, you know? I mean, these are extremely, like, legitimate. 
So because they're well legitimate, they are good. Because well, they are legitimate. I do want to jump yes. in here and mention yes. the fact that Ryan is ignoring the fact that there are checks and balances on Supreme Court. Judges. Yeah, they yes. can be impeached. I know that's, that's, that's not even the only that's, one. That's you not, can rewrite legislation to avoid constitutional conflicts. You can pass laws that, would, okay. for example, um, I, okay, that's make, true. Ter, ter, may like make the right to an abortion a law. I'm forgetting the word for it, but you know, turn make it. Okay. Right. You're right, and you're true, except for the fact that there's times where the courts will just, at the end of the day, unanimously strike things down. And there's no way. There's no way well, to make a functional well, triple in that A. Case, in that NRA case, you're imagining. Useful. In that case, you are imagining a world in which the Supreme Court has just gone rogue. And frankly, Ryan, if that no, if not, no, 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 no. I'm not. Anyway. I'm not imagining a world where the Supreme Court's gone, gone rogue. I'm imagining the world which currently exists, which is this re- court. Serves as a reactionary body. So the New Deal is a great example where, and I'll get, Gene can respond to this in a second, where a bunch of very important things like the NRA, the AAA, uh, get demolished by the way in which the court exists because they just like fundamentally think the policies that they're passing are bad. I mean, and that's not an, another good example of this is recently uh, there was a public sector union thing where they said that they, unions can't require uh, this to like. Um, Members I, to be joined, yeah. and the issue here isn't even a legislative one. It's just fundamentally the Roberts Court like hates labor unions. Like I Roberts basically Ryan hates here, the NLRB, which right? is that I think the Supreme Court is bad for the like the Supreme Court as it, it currently functions is bad for democracy and bad for uh, the country. But I don't think abolishing the Supreme Court is the remedy. I do think we need a judicial check on um, the other branches. Well. So, I think there's a few things here. First is that I don't think there is no check on the Supreme Court. I think future courts that exist, more justices come on the court, and there can be challenges to, to pass precedent. I think it also operates the same way the federal government operates. Like, the Senate doesn't have necessarily a check above it, but it still has checks and balances within that. So, I think the branches check each other. I think... An important question here is what do you think how do you think it operates without judicial review because I think legislative supremacy well okay legislative supremacy I think let's get let's let's dive into that because if you want to talk about an example well, let's not dive into the merits of it but the Texas abortion law it's without okay, so the court how does that how does you're that right that happen? there are a lot of problems there and I think there's a few things that need to come up here one at the end of the day I do fundamentally think that just like democratic principles, overrule. Two, I think, like, federal legislation could step up here in a world where there isn't a Senate federal legislation. So, to the extent that I think a court is valuable, and I will defend this, is that it's useful for things like like federalism, fundamentally. Uh, but I, th- <laughs> I think that, like, you know, in a world where, like, there isn't this court, it'd be easier, and there isn't the Senate, which is something, another thing we've talked about. And obviously, this is all very hypothetical, things that aren't going to exist. And you can say that's an issue with everything I advocate, and you wouldn't be that wrong. Um, that, you know, federal abortion laws could potentially, you know, mess with that. The other thing is the federal government could do what they always do and just play with block grants until the Texas has to concede. But on your issue, on your point about, like, future courts, like, I think you're right that future courts will check. But, like, I don't think it's worth defending, like, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, which basically upholds – um, that's a the upholds segregation it happens in 1896, and it takes until the 1960s for a segregation to be ended. So yeah, future courts do matter, but when the Warren Court is like the only time that, for me anyway, I can point to a court being good. Like I don't, I'm not trusting that a decades of suffering that court can cause for people is a good thing, and two that it will ever be remedied. Well, I, I mean, think it's a not- question of whether that suffering happens absent the court or with or like if the court doesn't exist. And I think, like, it's not a question of whether the court exists or whether that suffering happens. 
I mean, I think at times it is, at times it isn't, right? Like, I think there was a few, for maybe you're right in terms of like Plessy v. Ferguson, it's not necessarily a fair comparison because it would have been hard to say the federal government was going to do a whole lot to stop it. But at the same time, I think like, for me, like I, I look to labor issues for a lot of things, and this is like a fundamental disagreement we're going to have. There's that word again. Um, uh, that uh, were the courts, like you know, whether it be Gilded Age courts, the courts from, or the you know, in a, or you know, the courts that opposed FDR, or today's courts, they've been fundamentally uh, anti-labor. Like they generally side with financial capital. And I think that's just a problem that they have that the ju- that the justices and the way they operate and their like ability to get to where they are uh, is like problematic. The other thing I will say about these justices is because they're appointed by the president, none of them will reign in president the presidential powers because if you ever say anything negative about like federalism or not federal, sorry, uh, executive powers, and this is proven. Like if you look at people who were supposed to go on the port, court, if they ever do anything against um, the president. Or any executive like case, if they ever take up the side that says the executive should be constrained, they won't get this uh, Supreme Court or even a lot of federal court appointments. Ryan, you keep cherry picking certain cases where the Supreme Court has made bad. Okay, give decisions, me the cases like, where they do it good. Uh, I mean, uh, there's hundreds to defend uh, like essential freedoms <laughs> outlined in the Constitution. Freedom so, of speech. So, Ryan, okay, but, right also, right? I mean, but the Supreme Court Gideon also the, the, the Supreme Court also says that you can't advocate against go- Wisconsin. Okay, you're giving a bunch of random court cases that are useful, but at, like I just, a ton of other times where they also basically use those quote unquote protected rights and use them in a negative way. A great example of this be uh, would be like Schenck v. S. or Debs v. U. S. Uh, there's like four different, five different cases that occur in about 1917 where people are saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't go draft to go fight in some random war, like World War One. this is. Like, there's no real reason for the U.S. to be in there. Maybe you should dodge this. And all these people are arrested. And the cause they say is you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater. At the end of the day, there's times that the court is good, but I think that's just going to be outweighed by the number of cases that they're going to be deciding that are bad and cause negative harms that outweigh the benefits they've caused. Well, how I mean, well, how can you name an instance? I mean, there are a few. I, I don't even know, but like, name an instance where this the a bad ruling from the Supreme Court outweighs fundamental civil liberties. I think U.S. v. Shank is what I was just talking well, about. Well, okay, it's a no, quote unquote civil so, liberty case that oppresses Ryan, civil liberties. Uh, Shank the U.S. Since Shank is the one, the first word, it's the he's Shank is the one suing the federal government which means that it is an appeal that goes from a lower court, which means that if the Supreme Court didn't exist, Shank would still be in prison. That's probably true, but they still ultimately create a, like, ruling that is, like, wrong, I think. Like, you're right that he would have been in prison no matter what. Like, the only way for that to be challenged would be for it to go to the Okay, that's true, but I think at the end of the day, this just becomes an issue of, like, I don't know, legal interpretation or what have you. Uh, but I just don't think there's like a world, f- like at that point, then it just doesn't matter that judicial review exists or doesn't exist. This case is just like, it's an issue that legislative supremacy still has flaws, but the court's not going to correct those. So I, I, I do think it's a very interesting, interesting idea about abolishing judicial review. I, I wonder like in, in cases, say there's a criminal case, someone gets convicted. Is there an appeals process for yeah. that? So, like, obviously, there's still room for, like, Supreme Courts to make decisions and to use the Constitution. I don't, I don't even think this is necessarily a case. Like, had they protected Schenck in this case, like, it wouldn't have fundamentally 
they would have just been interpreting the law, and that's fine, and that's what they should do in some extent. So in a country where there's limited judicial review that I think serves as a good model, maybe it's like the UK, where there is a Supreme Court and it does look at certain laws and how they should be interpreted, uh, and sort of this like kind of more vague idea of what a constitution is in a place like the UK or Canada for that extent. Uh, but um, they they aren't making these same sweeping changes and like just overruling and outlawing. Uh, major pieces of legislation. So this quick, a case like this potentially could still go up in a model that there isn't this kind of judicial supremacy that's being asserted. But at the same time, you know, there isn't like cases that are just making the NLRB illegal. I mean, Ryan, I don't, if you abolish the Supreme Court. Well, I'm not saying abolish the Supreme Court. I'm talking about specifically the intense amount of judicial supremacy and review they exert. Okay. Let's say you abolish that. You're greatly diminishing the power of the only legislative body that is not political. It's okay. So the only body. Okay, of a couple things. One, not legislative body. Two, that's not, uh, that's it's, not a, a it's branch a of government. deeply political. This is like a major f- issue I have with people who are trying to defend the court. Is they're going to say it's not political? The court was created as a political institution and will always be political. It's not the idea I mean, that it's you said that it's political, but I mean, take, how are they take not political? Judge, take Judge Kavanaugh for example. He was a Trump appointee who liberals were freaking out about for other reasons, but putting those reasons aside, I mean, he's ruled as a centrist. Okay, so we can talk about a few things. He's not a centrist. He's got really radical views about regulatory power. Yeah, he doesn't think there's like anybody. But he has ruled far more in the far more towards the center than. People okay, but that's still it. political rule. Okay, so your thing is because something exists in some kind of center, it's not political. That is a fallacy. It's not just because you don't perceive it as political does not mean it's a political. There are no yeah. political incentives for centrist, Supreme Court justices. Be, being a centrist. Because they have their own, they, they believe, they understand that they have so much yes, power. Do, all right, Roberts, Ryan, they, no, they have shut political. Up. Roberts sits there <laughs> and he, no, he has political power. So he asserts his judicial philosophy. And this was the issue I said originally. That I have a problem with people sitting and saying, that their interpretation, their philosophy is actually the Constitution. And that's what Roberts is doing when he sits there and makes decisions. You can say he's a centrist and he's not political, but at the end of the day, those decisions are political. Yeah. They, they have political opinions, sure, but they're not political in the but sense those that are someone who's running for re-election every two years. I, I, they're I infesting also, the, the, the political landscape. You mean, right? you mean they're anti-democratic is what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like, and to some extent, And yes. the same extent that a king is not political, yeah. Like, the, <sighs> the Prince of Liechtenstein exists a lot of political authority. Yeah, except they People don't have might, absolute powers. He almost does. Except... No, uh, the Supreme Court does not well, have no, absolute sorry, power. Court, the Prince the of Liechtenstein is a... It's the Supreme Law of the land. The Supreme Court can't be challenged because no legislative body is willing to stand up to it in the modern era. But back in the time where, like, Lincoln was before he was elected, there was this willingness to, you know, fight the court. So this, you need to, so like, if you're saying that there should be ways to fight the court, I'm fine. If that's the change you need to make, then yeah, I think we should constantly question the court's legitimacy. Right. The reason the Supreme Court is not challenged is because they rule in a way that is political and people just accept. Well, and right. no, they rule in an institutionalist I, manner in order to, to allow themselves to appear <laughs> to appear as if they are not moving too far outside of the current political opinion. So, for example, with like all sorts of cases like these abortion cases, the court always chooses or always tries to choose it a decision that is the least political and they try, well, sorry, the least, um, the, the decision that is going to invoke the least amount of partisan ire because they are trying to avoid um, becoming an, a highly partisan and politicized institution. So in that way, I guess you can argue they're less political because they're always trying to triangulate and rule towards the uh, current consensus of the country, which I think is where Reed is right. Where Ryan is right is that, you know, choosing to support 
the consensus of the country is still technically a political choice. Like, there's nothing less political about being a centrist than being somebody far to the left or far to the right. No, I, I, I agree with that. So and that's not. I'm not saying because he's a centrist, he's doesn't have political opinions. That's not what I'm saying. Centrist, like the centrist but, views are a is a political opinion. When I say political, I mean it in a very narrowed context of making decisions based on what's good for them and the for and. Furthering okay, their, so your like, belief staying is that power. legislatures, well, like what he is effectively trying to maintain his own power. Uh, any court, any time that like so they have he, lifetime appointments, they have no incentive to do that. Well, they have incentive because they want to. Okay, does it they, because I they, mean, have, I, they I, have incentive? I genuinely they believe. Want, I genuinely uh, believe that Supreme I mean, Court justices rule based on what they believe. Yeah, they do, and that's. And that, I mean, that's not what happens in legislative bodies. To some extent, no, you're right. That's not what happens, but that doesn't. You're making a defense of monarchism here. Like, I, make a defense of ju- no, um, judiciary. It's very that, different from no. Honor. Make a defense of ju- the judiciary that isn't a defense because they're of defending a constitution. They're not. They're not asserting what they personally believe. They're I mean, well, largely well. Okay, so here's where we disagree. I mean, I they, think are, they, do, are, they are. They are. They are. They personally believe things about the constitution, about the way laws work. Amy Coney Barry, as I mentioned earlier, perfect example of this. She believes that she should apply the Bible to the constitution and make them work together, despite the fact that's just like fundamentally not what like the constitution's meant to be that is her just creating a judicial philosophy out of what her politics are and applying them to an institutionalized manner i think that's deeply political and creates tons of problems i mean whether or not you believe i mean i again that doesn't fit with the way the way i'm using the word political in this instance because she's not doing that. Okay, so your poli- idea of what the- politics are is that it's only something that exists in self-interest. But when I think extent. we're disagreeing what self-interest is, one, I think people still want to uh, – the idea of having power is inherently something that people want that's self-interested. Like holding power is something that people like. People like power. So there's some interest that comes out of that. Like obviously, I think. Two, they're uh, they are maintaining their like position and their authority. So like you're trying to say that everything I'm saying, every time I make a point, you just say, "Well, that's not what I mean by politics." <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But they shouldn't make you're, a point. You're, you're- so I think what Ryan's talking about does bring up a few good questions because he does think that abolishing the Supreme Court shouldn't happen. So I wonder, like, what do you think the Supreme Court? How do you think the Supreme Court should operate? after they don't have the power of judicial review. Okay, so to answer Gene's questions, I think maybe there's a role for some uh, limited judicial review. And you can look to a country like Canada or the United Kingdom for an example of this. Uh, And what it has is where there's times in which they can do limited amounts of, like, interpretation of how laws should be enforced or looked at. But ultimately, the Supreme Court should just serve as, like, the highest courts of appeals and... Like, that should be the line at where it's drawn. It's not supposed to be some place where it's able to make grand decisions over how the Constitution is or isn't, but instead is just, like, a body basically to manage, like, the highest of appeals. So they are still existing to manage the highest body of appeals, right? Yeah. How do they determine what the Constitution is? I mean, that's... Okay, so that's an interesting way way to address it. I think you just need to, again, look towards... Canada or the United Kingdom, where they effectively, yes, where there is judicial philosophy, but because legislative supremacy is dominant, you affect, you look towards the legislature and the way the laws are, and the way that generally the codex of all laws exist, and apply those to the um, current case they're perceiving to make sure it something that the, you know, to determine which way the appeals falls. So, like, a case like the recent LGBTQ discrimination case that was decided in favor of not allowing companies to fire people just because they're LGBTQ. Like, what do you think about that? So I think 
you know, there's a, so, I mean, I think there's a few places. One, I think this is a, like, in terms of, when you're asking me what I think about it, do you think it's something that it could exist under my model of a court? Yeah. Okay, so I think in some extent it could because it's just, like, an interpretation. If it's an interpretation of, like, the Civil Rights Act or whatever, then, like, yes, I think that's fundamentally fine because it's defaulting to legislate to the legislature. Well, they, I also did, think they didn't decide based off the Civil Rights Act. So, like, do you think they should decide I mean, based off? I think off they should. And I think there's also a place for this is where legislative supremacy should step up. And I think a fair criticism of what a lot of I'm bringing up is, is that if you look at a lot of parties, like, left, especially left-wing parties in the U.S. will often oppose... Uh, judicial review, but in a lot of countries like the UK, you'll find some of the more left-wing parties, like um, Plaid Cymru, which is the Welsh National Party, is actually more oh, in favor. I know favor. all about Plaid Cymru. Yeah, I forgot to say it. Thank you. Um, and they uh, are more in favor because they think like the ideas of a constitution, you know, create some more protections. And I think you know there's a role for that to be discussed. But at the end of the day, I think defaulting to a more effective legislature and interpreting like a codex of laws effectively like a lot of co- like the kind of idea of an unwritten constitution even though we have a written constitution is a stronger model of a more democratic america so what happens when that legislature doesn't support those rights i mean i think that's like an inherent issue that will occur and i think that's the place for like i think this is where we disagree at some point where i at that point is where like grassroots activism needs to take Hold and there needs to be mass movements, mass demonstrations, mass politics. So mass right? protests will stop a legislation. No, I don't think they. I think that, but I think it's also untrue to say that they like don't influence how politics are. Well, I'm not saying they don't influence how politics but work, but I, I think, think if a, legis- if a legislature is going to pass a law that's inherently discriminatory, I don't know if this is a relevant discussion, given that Ryan has said he thinks that this is an inevitable problem. So it's not really relevant to whether we should well change the Supreme Court or not. I'm just asking how he thinks that that outweigh that is outweighed by the. Like, well, one, I think my one of our issues here, I think, is that I think the the court is a elitist institution issuing orders from above. I think politics should come from the people from below, like grassroots mobilization. So, Ryan, you said you don't believe that policy should come from above, correct? I don't think the court, the way in which you're viewing like Confused. rights to be like civil rights or anti discrimination or pro like. You're saying that the court should issue those determinations as a the, you know, as an elite, undemocratic institution and disseminate those down to the American people. I think grassroots movements should push politics upward. So you're saying you don't believe politics should be disseminated from above? Yeah. Correct? I, I yes. Think, With regards to the Supreme Court? Yes. But that's not how it okay, you're gonna currently bring, exists. Yes. So you're, gonna, you're, you're talking about the appeals nature. Correct. Right. Okay. So – my point is not that it literally exists as an institution where it works its way up an appeal system, and that's my point. Instead, is how, like, policy or culture or what have you is disseminated among decisions. So, what happens with the court, and the way I view it, is an elitist institution. They decide some. They decide a court case, and that has an effect on the entire United States. They don't decide a court case. No, I am aware that it comes up through an appeal system. But your point is like, you don't understand my point. That concludes episode four of 440 Views from the Hill. Stay tuned for new episodes in the upcoming weeks. We would like to give special thanks to Mr. Joshua Clark for sponsoring this independent study, Mr. Henry Diggins for assisting our recording progress, and Jack Keller for our theme music. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.